Section three of a treatise concerning the principles of human knowledge by George Barclay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Of the principles of human knowledge continued. Twenty seven. No idea of spirit. A spirit is one simple, undivided, active being. As it perceives ideas, it is called the understanding, and as it produces or otherwise operates about them, it is called the will. Hence there can be no idea formed of a soul or spirit. For all ideas whatever, being passive and inert, vide section 25, they cannot represent unto us, by way of image or likeness, that which acts. A little attention will make it plain to anyone, that to have an idea which shall be like that active principle of motion and change of ideas, is absolutely impossible. Such is the nature of spirit, or that which acts, that it cannot be of itself perceived, but only by the effects which it produceth. If any man shall doubt of the truth of what is here delivered, let him but reflect, and try if he can frame the idea of any power or active being, and whether he has ideas of two principal powers, marked by the names will and understanding, distinct from each other as well as from a third idea of substance or being in general with a relative notion of its supporting or being the subject of the aforesaid powers which is signified by the name soul or spirit this is what some hold but so far as i can see the words will note understanding mind edition seventeen ten soul spirit do not stand for different ideas or in truth for any idea at all but for something which is very different from ideas and which, being an agent, cannot be like unto or represented by any idea whatsoever. Though it must be owned at the same time that we have some notion of soul, spirit, and the operations of the mind, such as willing, loving, hating, inasmuch as we know or understand the meaning of these words. 28. I find I can excite ideas in my mind at pleasure, and vary and shift the scene as oft as I think fit, it is no more than willing and straightway this or that idea arises in my fancy and by the same power it is obliterated and makes way for another this making and unmaking of ideas doth very properly denominate the mind active thus much is certain and grounded on experience but when we think of unthinking agents or of exciting ideas exclusive of volition we only amuse ourselves with words twenty nine ideas of sensation differ from those of reflection or memory but whatever power i may have over my own thoughts i find the ideas actually perceived by sense have not a like dependence on my will when in broad daylight i open my eyes it is not in my power to choose whether i shall see or no or to determine what particular objects shall present themselves to my view and so likewise as to the hearing and other senses the ideas imprinted on them are not creatures of my will there is therefore some other will or spirit that produces them thirty laws of nature the ideas of sense are more strong lively and distinct than those of the imagination they have likewise a steadiness order and coherence and are not excited at random as those which are the effects of human wills often are but in a regular train or series the admirable connection whereof sufficiently testifies the wisdom and benevolence of its author now the set rules or established methods wherein the mind we depend on excites in us the ideas of sense are called the laws of nature and these we learn by experience which teaches us that such and such ideas are attended with such and such other ideas in the ordinary course of things 
31. Knowledge of them necessary for the conduct of worldly affairs. This gives us a sort of foresight which enables us to regulate our actions for the benefit of life. And without this we should be eternally at a loss. We could not know how to act anything that might procure us the least pleasure, or remove the least pain of sense. That food nourishes, sleep refreshes, and fire warms us. That to sow in the seed-time is the way to reap in the harvest. And in general that to obtain such or such ends, such or such means are conducive. All this we know not by discovering any necessary connection between our ideas, but only by the observation of the settled laws of nature, without which we should be all in uncertainty and confusion, and a grown man no more know how to manage himself in the affairs of life than an infant just born. 32. And yet this consistent uniform working, which so evidently displays the goodness and wisdom of the governing spirit whose will constitutes the laws of nature, is so far from leading our thoughts to him that it rather sends them a wandering after second causes for when we perceive certain ideas of sense constantly followed by other ideas and we know this is not of our own doing we forthwith attribute power and agency to the ideas themselves and make one the cause of another than which nothing can be more absurd and unintelligible thus for example having observed that when we perceive by sight a certain round luminous figure we at the same time perceive by touch the idea or sensation called heat we do from thence conclude the sun to be the cause of heat and in like manner perceiving the motion and collision of bodies to be attended with sound we are inclined to think the latter the effect of the former thirty three of real things and ideas or chimeras the ideas imprinted on the senses by the author of nature are called real things and those excited in the imagination being less regular vivid and constant are more properly termed ideas or images of things which they copy and represent but then our sensations be they never so vivid and distinct are nevertheless ideas that is they exist in the mind or are perceived by it as truly as the ideas of its own framing the ideas of sense are allowed to have more reality in them that is to be more one strong two orderly and three coherent than the creatures of the mind but this is no argument that they exist without the mind they are also four less dependent on the spirit note vide section twenty nine note or thinking substance which perceives them in that they are excited by the will of another and more powerful spirit yet still they are ideas and certainly no idea whether faint or strong can exist otherwise than in a mind perceiving it 34. First general objection. Answer. Before we proceed any farther, it is necessary we spend some time in answering objections which may probably be made against the principles we have hitherto laid down. In doing of which, if I seem too prolix to those of quick apprehensions, I hope it may be pardoned, since all men do not equally apprehend things of this nature, and I am willing to be understood by every one first then it will be objected that by the foregoing principles all that is real and substantial in nature is banished out of the world and instead thereof a chimerical scheme of ideas takes place all things that exist exist only in the mind that is they are purely notional what therefore becomes of the sun moon and stars what must we think of houses rivers mountains trees stones nay even of our own bodies are all these but so many chimeras and illusions on the fancy 
to all which and whatever else of the same sort may be objected i answer that by the principles premised we are not deprived of any one thing in nature whatever we see feel hear or anywise conceive or understand remains as secure as ever and is as real as ever there is a rerum natura and the distinction between realities and chimeras retains its full force this is evident from section twenty nine thirty and thirty three where we have shown what is meant by real things in opposition to chimeras or ideas of our own framing but then they both equally exist in the mind and in that sense they are alike ideas thirty five the existence of matter as understood by philosophers denied vide section eighty four i do not argue against the existence of any one thing that we can apprehend either by sense or reflection that the things i see with my eyes and touch with my hands do exist really exist i make not the least question the only thing whose existence we deny is that which philosophers call matter or corporeal substance and in doing of this there is no damage done to the rest of mankind who i dare say will never miss it the atheist indeed will want the colour of an empty name to support his impiety and the philosophers may possibly find they have lost a great handle for trifling and disputation thirty six readily explained if any man thinks this detracts from the existence or reality of things he is very far from understanding what has been premised in the plainest terms i could think of take here an abstract of what has been said there are spiritual substances minds or human souls which will or excite ideas in themselves at pleasure but these are faint weak and unsteady in respect of others they perceive by sense which being impressed upon them according to certain rules or laws of nature speak themselves the effects of a mind more powerful and wise than human spirits these latter are said to have more reality in them than the former by which is meant that they are more affecting orderly and distinct and that they are not fictions of the mind perceiving them and in this sense the sun that i see by day is the real sun and that which i imagine by night is the idea of the former in the sense here given of reality it is evident that every vegetable star mineral and in general each part of the mundane system is as much a real being by our principles as by any other whether others mean anything by the term reality different from what i do i entreat them to look into their own thoughts and see thirty seven the philosophic not the vulgar substance taken away i will be urged that thus much at least is true to wit that we take away all corporeal substances to this my answer is that if the word substance be taken in the vulgar sense for a combination of sensible qualities such as extension solidity weight and the like this we cannot be accused of taking away but if it be taken in a philosophic sense for the support of accidents or qualities without the mind then indeed i acknowledge that we take it away if one may be said to take away that which never had any existence not even in the imagination thirty eight but say you it sounds very harsh to say we eat and drink ideas and are clothed with ideas i acknowledge it does so the word idea not being used in common discourse to signify the several combinations of sensible qualities which are called things and it is certain that any expression which varies from the familiar use of language will seem harsh and ridiculous but this doth not concern the truth of the proposition which in other words is no more than to say we are fed and clothed with those things which we perceive immediately by our senses 
the hardness or softness the colour taste warmth figure or such like qualities which combined together constitute the several sorts of victuals and apparel have been shown to exist only in the mind that perceives them and this is all that is meant by calling them ideas which word if it was as ordinarily used as thing would sound no harsher nor more ridiculous than it i am not for disputing about the propriety but the truth of the expression if therefore you agree with me that we eat and drink and are clad with the immediate objects of sense which cannot exist unperceived or without the mind i shall readily grant it is more proper or conformable to custom that they should be called things rather than ideas thirty nine the term idea preferable to thing if it be demanded why i make use of the word idea and do not rather in compliance with custom call them things i answer i do it for two reasons first because the term thing in contradistinction to idea is generally supposed to denote somewhat existing without the mind secondly because thing has a more comprehensive signification than idea including spirit or thinking things as well as ideas since therefore the objects of sense exist only in the mind and are withal thoughtless and inactive i chose to mark them by the word idea which implies those properties forty the evidence of the senses not discredited but say what we can some one perhaps may be apt to reply he will still believe his senses and never suffer any arguments how plausible soever to prevail over the certainty of them be it so assert the evidence of sense as high as you please we are willing to do the same that what i see hear and feel doth exist that is to say is perceived by me i no more doubt than i do of my own being but i do not see how the testimony of sense can be alleged as a proof for the existence of anything which is not perceived by sense we are not for having any man turn sceptic and disbelieve his senses on the contrary we give them all the stress and assurance imaginable nor are there any principles more opposite to scepticism than those we have laid down note as shall be hereafter clearly shown note they extirpate the very root of scepticism the fallacy of the senses ed forty one second objection answer secondly it will be objected that there is a great difference betwixt real fire for instance and the idea of fire betwixt dreaming or imagining oneself burnt and actually being so if you suspect it to be only the idea of fire which you see do but put your hand into it and you will be convinced with a witness this and the like may be urged in opposition to our tenets to all which the answer is evident from what has been already said and i shall only add in this place that if real fire be very different from the idea of fire so also is the real pain that it occasions very different from the idea of the same pain and yet nobody will pretend that real pain either is or can possibly be in an unperceiving thing or without the mind any more than its idea forty two third objection answer thirdly it will be objected that we see things actually without or at a distance from us and which consequently do not exist in the mind it being absurd that those things which are seen at the distance of several miles should be as near to us as our own thoughts in answer to this i desire it may be considered that in a dream we do oft perceive things as existing at a great distance off and yet for all that those things are acknowledged to have their existence only in the mind forty three 
but for the fuller clearing of this point it may be worth while to consider how it is that we perceive distance and things placed at a distance by sight for that we should in truth see external space and bodies actually existing in it some nearer others farther off seems to carry with it some opposition to what has been said of their existing nowhere without the mind the consideration of this difficulty it was that gave birth to my essay towards a new theory of vision which was published not long since wherein it is shown one that distance or outness is neither immediately of itself perceived by sight nor yet apprehended or judged of by lines and angles or anything that has a necessary connection with it but two that it is only suggested to our thoughts by certain visible ideas and sensations attending vision which in their own nature have no manner of similitude or relation either with distance or things placed at a distance but by a connection taught us by experience they come to signify and suggest them to us after the same manner that words of any language suggest the ideas they are made to stand for insomuch that a man born blind and afterwards made to see would not at first sight think the things he saw to be without his mind or at any distance from him see section forty one of the forementioned treatise forty four the ideas of sight and touch make two species entirely distinct and heterogeneous the former are marks and prognostics of the latter that the proper objects of sight neither exist without mind nor are the images of external things was shown even in that treatise though throughout the same the contrary be supposed true of tangible objects not that to suppose that vulgar error was necessary for establishing the notion therein laid down but because it was beside my purpose to examine and refute it in a discourse concerning vision so that in strict truth the ideas of sight when we apprehend by them distance and things placed at a distance do not suggest or mark out to us things actually existing at a distance but only admonish us what ideas of touch will be imprinted in our minds at such and such distances of time and in consequence of such or such actions it is i say evident from what has been said in the foregoing parts of this treatise and in section one hundred and forty seven and elsewhere of the essay concerning vision that visible ideas are the language whereby the governing spirit on whom we depend informs us what tangible ideas he is about to imprint upon us in case we excite this or that motion in our own bodies but for a fuller information in this point i refer to the essay itself forty five fourth objection from perpetual annihilation and creation answer fourthly it will be objected that from the foregoing principles it follows things are every moment annihilated and created anew the objects of sense exist only when they are perceived the trees therefore are in the garden or the chairs in the parlour no longer than while there is somebody by to perceive them upon shutting my eyes all the furniture in the room is reduced to nothing and barely upon opening them it is again created in answer to all which i refer the reader to what has been said in section three four and so on and a desire that he will consider whether he means anything by the actual existence of an idea distinct from its being perceived for my part after the nicest inquiry i could make i am not able to discover that anything else is meant by those words and i once more entreat the reader to sound his own thoughts and not suffer himself to be imposed on by words if he can conceive it possible either for his ideas or their archetypes to exist without being perceived then i give up the cause but if he cannot he will acknowledge it is unreasonable for him to stand up in defence of he knows not what and pretend to charge on me as an absurdity the not assenting to those propositions which at bottom have no meaning in them 
46. Argumentum ad hominem. It will not be amiss to observe how far the received principles of philosophy are themselves chargeable with those pretended absurdities. 1. It is thought strangely absurd that upon closing my eyelids all the visible objects around me should be reduced to nothing. And yet is not this what philosophers commonly acknowledge when they agree on all hands that light and colours, which alone are the proper and immediate objects of sight, are mere sensations that exist no longer than they are perceived? 2. Again, it may to some perhaps seem very incredible that things should be every moment creating, yet this very notion is commonly taught in the schools. For the schoolmen, though they acknowledge the existence of matter, and that the whole mundane fabric is framed out of it, are nevertheless of opinion that it cannot subsist without the divine conservation, which by them is expounded to be a continual creation. 47. 3. Further, a little thought will discover to us that though we allow the existence of matter or corporeal substance, yet it will unavoidably follow, from the principles which are now generally admitted, that the particular bodies, of what kind soever, do none of them exist whilst they are not perceived. For it is evident from section 2 and the following sections that the matter philosophers contend for is an incomprehensible somewhat, which has none of those particular qualities whereby the bodies falling under our senses are distinguished one from another. 2. But to make this more plain, it must be remarked that the infinite divisibility of matter is now universally allowed, at least by the most approved and considerable philosophers, who on the received principles demonstrate it beyond all exception. Hence it follows there is an infinite number of parts in each particle of matter which are not perceived by sense. The reason, therefore, that any particular body seems to be of a finite magnitude, or exhibits only a finite number of parts to sense, is, not because it contains no more, since in itself it contains an infinite number of parts, but because the sense is not acute enough to discern them. In proportion, therefore, as the sense is rendered more acute, it perceives a greater number of parts in the object, that is, the object appears greater, and its figure varies, those parts in its extremities which were before unperceivable appearing now to bound it in very different lines and angles from those perceived by an obtuser sense. And at length, after various changes of size and shape, when the sense becomes infinitely acute, the body shall seem infinite, during all which there is no alteration in the body, but only in the sense. Each body, therefore, considered in itself, is infinitely extended, and consequently void of all shape or figure from which it follows that though we should grant the existence of matter to be never so certain yet it is withal as certain the materialists themselves are by their own principles forced to acknowledge that neither the particular bodies perceived by sense nor anything like them exists without the mind matter i say and each particle thereof is according to them infinite and shapeless and it is the mind that frames all that variety of bodies which compose the visible world any one whereof does not exist longer than it is perceived forty eight if we consider it the objection proposed in section forty five will not be found reasonably charged on the principles we have premised so as in truth to make any objection at all against our notions for though we hold indeed the objects of sense to be nothing else but ideas which cannot exist unperceived yet we may not hence conclude they have no existence except only while they are perceived by us since there may be some other spirit that perceives them though we do not wherever bodies are said to have no existence without the mind i would not be understood to mean this or that particular mind but all minds whatsoever 
it does not therefore follow from the foregoing principles that bodies are annihilated and created every moment or exist not at all during the intervals between our perception of them forty nine fifth objection answer fifthly it may perhaps be objected that if extension and figure exist only in the mind it follows that the mind is extended and figured since extension is a mode or attribute which to speak with the schools is predicated of the subject in which it exists i answer one those qualities are in the mind only as they are perceived by it that is not by way of mode or attribute but only by way of idea and it no more follows the soul or mind is extended because extension exists in it alone than it does that it is red or blue because those colors are on all hands acknowledged to exist in it and nowhere else two as to what philosophers say of subject and mode that seems very groundless and unintelligible for instance in this proposition a die is hard extended and square they will have it that the word die denotes a subject or substance distinct from the hardness extension and figure which are predicated of it and in which they exist this i cannot comprehend to me a die seems to be nothing distinct from those things which are termed its modes or accidents and to say a die is hard extended and square is not to attribute those qualities to a subject distinct from and supporting them but only an explication of the meaning of the word die fifty sixth objection from natural philosophy answer sixthly you will say there have been a great many things explained by matter and motion take away these and you destroy the whole corpuscular philosophy and undermine those mechanical principles which have been applied with so much success to account for the phenomena in short whatever advances have been made either by ancient or modern philosophers in the study of nature do all proceed on the supposition that corporeal substance or matter doth really exist to this i answer that there is not any one phenomenon explained on that supposition which may not as well be explained without it as might easily be made appear by an induction of particulars to explain the phenomena is all one as to show why upon such and such occasions we are affected with such and such ideas but one how matter should operate on a spirit or produce any idea in it is what no philosopher will pretend to explain it is therefore evident there can be no use of matter in natural philosophy besides too they who attempt to account for things do it not by corporeal substance but by figure motion and other qualities which are in truth no more than mere ideas and therefore cannot be the cause of anything as has already been shown see section twenty five fifty one seventh objection answer seventhly it will upon this be demanded whether it does not seem absurd to take away natural causes and ascribe everything to the immediate operation of spirits we must no longer say upon these principles that fire heats or water cools but that a spirit heats and so forth would not a man be deservedly laughed at who should talk after this manner i answer he would so and in such things we ought to think with the learned and speak with the vulgar they who to demonstration are convinced of the truth of the copernican system do nevertheless say the sun rises the sun sets or comes to the meridian and if they affected a contrary style in common talk it would without doubt appear very ridiculous a little reflection on what is here said will make it manifest that the common use of language would receive no manner of alteration or disturbance from the admission of our tenets fifty two in the ordinary affairs of life any phrases may be retained 
so long as they excite in us proper sentiments or dispositions to act in such a manner as is necessary for our well-being how false soever they may be if taken in a strict and speculative sense nay this is unavoidable since propriety being regulated by custom language is suited to the received opinions which are not always the truest hence it is impossible even in the most rigid philosophic reasonings so far to alter the bent and genius of the tongue we speak as never to give a handle for cavillers to pretend difficulties and inconsistencies but a fair and ingenuous reader will collect the sense from the scope and tenor and connection of a discourse making allowances for those inaccurate modes of speech which use has made inevitable end of section three